You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 16, beginning at verse 19, ending at verse 31. The Lord Jesus here in the broader context is relating a number of parables, and we come to this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son... Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. We turn now to Lord's Day 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Not only my, or shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ, my head, but also this, my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. Well, the congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, this is what 
I would call a rock'em, sock'em, shock'em parable. In some ways, it represents the Lord Jesus Christ at his best. It furnishes proof that he is the teacher par excellence. And looking at this parable, we can right away see that it's built on a number of contrasts. There is the rich man and there's the beggar. There is the rich man who, by the way, maybe you noticed it is nameless. And there is the beggar who has a name called Lazarus. There is also a being with Abraham in heaven by Lazarus. And there is a being in hell by the rich man. Comfort and torment. And also, you might say, there is silence and speech here for there is a wonderful, quiet contentedness, it seems, with Lazarus, who is in the bosom of Abraham. And there is this constant verbal nattering and agitation coming from the rich man. So the parable is full of contrasts. But the parable is also kind of full of demands. For starters, the rich man, he may be in hell, but he's still giving orders. And he wants Lazarus to come down to hell and to dip his tongue in water and cool it. And thereafter, the rich man, who had no use for Lazarus whatsoever while in this life, wants him to become his personal messenger from the afterlife. Lazarus is supposed to go to his brother's and shock them into right believing and pious behaving. But Abraham is far from convinced. If you won't listen to the big boys in the Old Testament, to Moses and the prophets, what makes you think that they will listen to a beggar? In other words, when people have closed minds, nothing will help them. They will ignore, justify, rationalize just about anything and everything. They won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Those are the words of Lazarus, but you know, actually, they're the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's describing here already how later on people are going to react to him. That they will deny him as the risen Lord, that they will reject him as the resurrected Christ. They will turn their backs on him. And so the parable really ends on a down note. It ends with a prediction of doom. Nothing can help these people. They are stuck in their death mode, so to speak, depressing. But beloved, while the parable ends on a down note, The same cannot be said of the last part of the Apostles' Creed. If anything, it ends on a high note. It reaches a glorious finale with the words, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Yes, and the Catechism realizes this very well. And that's why it approaches these two expressions in in the manner and in the way that it does. First, it asks, what comfort does the resurrection of the body 
offer you. And next it asks, what comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Notice, you're all being challenged here. See, the catechism wants to make sure that you don't end up like that rich man and his five brothers. If you don't want to experience the agony of hell, then you have to do something. If you want to rest in the wonder of heaven. If you want to meet Abraham, so to speak. So what is it? So what it does is ask you about the state of your comfort. And indeed it asks whether these two last articles of the creed are really a comfort to you. And if so, in what way? Yes, and that leads me to preach to you this afternoon on the following theme, a boatload of comfort. And we're going to see that my soul is taken up to Christ. My flesh is reunited by Christ. My life is never ending with Christ. I use the expression a boatload of comfort in the theme of this sermon because really that's what you can find here in Lord's Day 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And, of course, we all know that a recurring theme of the Catechism has to do with comfort. That's how it begins in Lord's Day 1 with that famous question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And next, question 2 asks how we can always continue to experience this comfort, the joy of this comfort throughout our life. And then we have to wait quite a while. You may have noticed before the word pops up again. Finally, in question 52, we are asked, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? And thereafter, the catechism goes silent again until we come to Lord's Day 22. And all of a sudden, the theme of comfort is everywhere. It's in question 57, it's in question 58, it's in both answers as well. Of course, the word comfort isn't found in the answers as such. But still, if you study them, you can see that these answers are brimming over with comfort. Lord's Day 22 is full and overfull with comfort and consolation. There's a boatload of it here as it were. But then, beloved, note that it begins already with question and answer 57. There we are asked about the kind of comfort that we get from the biblical truths, the resurrection of the body. In other words, just how does this particular biblical truth help you today and strengthen you tomorrow? So, just what kind of comfort are we offered here, beloved? Well, it has to do, you can say, with comfort in relation, in connection with our bodies, with our flesh, with our physical beings. And even more than that, it has to do with comfort in relation to the dying of our bodies. Of course, that sounds odd. How can one speak about comfort 
and death in the same sentence. Death is so negative. It represents probably our greatest fear. It's the subject that most people most readily avoid. It's the future everyone dreads. And that's true for many people. But it's not true for us as Christians. For one of the great benefits of being a believer is that God injects hope and comfort into our lives, even in the face of death itself. Now, what is that comfort? Well, it resides, beloved, in the fact that when believers die, they do not become nothing. They do not cease to exist or go to hell. But when believers die, they're immediately taken up. Something happens to us right away when we die. We are, as it were, grasped, embraced, and taken up. And how do we know that? Well, we know it from the very words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To that shady character crucified beside him, he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. How can he say that? Today that man will still be on the cross. Or if he's not on the cross, he'll be off the cross. His body will be dumped somewhere. How can he be in paradise? How can he be in paradise with Christ? He's on the cross. Christ is on another cross. They're both on crosses. True enough. They're there. But soon, in a manner of speaking, they will not be there. Soon they will both be dead. Today, even. And what then? Well, then Christ says to the man, we will be together in paradise. Now, for that to be true, something else has to happen. There has to be a division, as it were, in man. He cannot be both on earth or under the earth and in heaven. Part of him goes into the earth and part of him goes up to heaven. The part that we can see and feel and touch every day goes down. The other part that's so hard to define and to describe goes up. The Catechism speaks in this respect about the soul going up. Now, I have to say, that word triggers things and immediately it causes some people to jump to all manner of conclusions as if somehow the catechism is perpetuating some sort of Greek body-soul dilemma or distinction, but, but that's hardly the case. The catechism uses that word soul because that word describes that part of our nature that is real but invisible. It's simply saying that the invisible, the immaterial part of our existence goes up. 
But to where? Well, notice the next expression. To Christ, my head. The soul or the immaterial, the invisible part of my life goes up to be with Christ. It doesn't die. It's not extinguished. It lives on. It lives up. It gets promoted. Only it gets promoted into the presence of the greatest person in all the world. When we die, we go to Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul even says at a certain point in his ministry, I desire to depart and be with Christ because that's better by far. And why is it better by far? Because there is no greater, better, more perfect, more wonderful person anywhere. Catechism reminds us of this in a way when it uses that expression, the head. Christ, our head. And that word head here represents power, majesty, might, and glory. You know, to the Ephesian believers, the Apostle Paul once wrote, God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness that fills everything in every way. And to the Colossian believers, the Apostle Paul writes, the head of the body is Christ, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn among the dead. So what happens when we die? All who believe are taken up To Christ. To be where he is. To be where Abraham is already. To be where the saints are. To be where our loved ones are. Now that, beloved, that's comforting. You see, it doesn't end after 70, 80, 90 years or prematurely before then. It doesn't start here and end here. No. When it ends here, we go up, get to go up to God, to Christ, to glory. Yes, we get to go up. And we get to go on. But just how do we go on? Do we go on as bodiless people? Do we go on immaterially? For a while, we do. However, that's not the end of the story. For notice, our flesh makes a comeback. A most surprising comeback. In this connection, it's perhaps good to tell you that the expression, the resurrection of the body is not the most accurate. The Greek, the Latin, the Dutch, and the German are more accurate when they translate the resurrection of the flesh. And you can see the catechism, even in its English translation, inclines in that direction. For right in the middle of answer 57, there comes this huge but. But also this, 
My flesh. And you might be asking yourself, where did that word flesh come from? Why does that word flesh and not body suddenly pop up here? Well, it does so because it's supposed to be in the question. What comfort does the resurrection of the flesh offer you? Well, now, in response to this question, the catechism answers, but also this, this, my flesh. You know, the sense is this. Would you believe it? But not only does something happen to my soul when I die, but something also happens to my flesh, to my lowly, often despised and criticized flesh. And what happens to it? It also gets raised. It doesn't remain in the grave forever. It's not a matter of from dust you came and to dust you go and to dust you will forever and ever be. No, this lowly, often maligned flesh of ours is gonna get raised. And not just raised. It's gonna get renewed Improved, glorified. You see, it's not just a case of getting your old, worn, weak, and weary flesh back again, thank goodness. No, Paul writes that Christ will use the same power that enables him to bring everything under his control to transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his Glorious body. Philippians 3, 21. You know, elsewhere the Apostle Paul describes a chain, a glorious golden chain. Predestination, calling, justification, glorification. And John writes, the Apostle John writes about our future as children of God and remarks that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. Not like we used to be, but like our Savior is today. He is the Lord of glory. And we, His children, are going to be children of glory. And so, beloved, the comfort offered here in this article of the Apostles' Creed is great. And you can say it's great because Christ Jesus makes it great. For notice, too, that this whole matter of the resurrection of the flesh is a matter Pretty much of Christ alone. I don't say the Father and the Spirit are totally excluded, but all the emphasis is placed on Christ. First, Christ takes my soul up to himself when I die. Second, Christ takes my flesh and reunites it with my soul. And third, Christ makes it all better than ever before. It'll be glorious. Precisely because he, 
is glorious. What a blessing. What a comfort. You see why Paul says this is, is better by far. There just ain't no comparison here. But still, that's not quite all. There's one more truth to consider, and it's the truth confessed in that very last article of the Creed. I believe in the life everlasting. So here we are taken up by Christ to Christ. We're raised by Christ. We're made like Christ. And now we get to live with Christ forever. Our life with Christ is everlasting. Forever. Always. Never ending. And now that's, that's hard to grasp. That's hard to wrap your, your mind around. And, and therefore you'll notice the catechism in its explanation does a really neat thing. It moves from the head to the heart. Look at how it begins. Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. It's saying that for believers, eternal joy begins here. You can already feel it here. Of course, it doesn't begin perfectly or fully here. Often it's mixed with tears and sadness, with suffering, struggle, pain, and conflict. And we've seen that in this past week as well with regard to the news about Mark Bonkus and the passing of Sister Alder Leiston. But you know, if you're in Christ, you already get to taste something of this eternal joy here and now. It isn't all future. No, there are snippets, so to speak, of it here. There are times when you can just feel it, or when you say, and have you ever perhaps said that this, this must be a foretaste of heaven. It's so glorious, so peaceful. So grand. Only it won't be heaven. It'll be better even than heaven because it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That's almost like saying an improved heaven if that's possible and certainly an improved earth. It'll be richer and even fuller. And indeed, it's really hard to describe just how full and rich and glorious this is going to be. The catechism, you know, tries when it says, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived. A blessedness in which to praise God forever. What? Beautiful words. That's not a catechism answer. That's a song of praise. That's doxology. 
Glory to God. You know, one writer tries to capture it with these words. I'm not sure whether he succeeded. You can be the judge of that. I don't think he does, but I don't think anybody can. But anyway, he tries. The blessedness of eternal life is like savoring your favorite drink or food and laughing with your favorite friends and being in your favorite places. It's like seeing your wife on her wedding day sparkling in her overpriced dress and grinning from ear to ear. It's like holding a newborn baby or watching your grandkids play. It's like standing on a dune overlooking Lake Michigan on one side and seeing a sea of green treetops on the other. It's like the peaceful majesty of corn blowing in the breeze in July or watching an afternoon storm roll over the front range. It's like being awed by a visit to the Great Wall of China or the skyline in New York City or the York Minster Cathedral in Northern England. And it's that rare moment when you know in your bones that God is with you. And you know that you really love Him and want to sing and shout and tell everyone how you feel. It's like all of those moments, except those moments never stop and they never wane. Beloved, what a comfort there is in the resurrection of the flesh and the life everlasting. What a comfort for all of you What a comfort for these parents, these grandparents, and for this baby as well. What a comfort for us all. Taste it. Feel it. Verbalize it. Enjoy it. Oh, what a a beginning of joy we have. Now, what a blessedness is coming. It's a blessedness in which to praise God forever. So thankfully, there are far, far better outcomes than what happened to the rich man and his five brothers. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.